Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the Governance Talk with Jose Molina Lee and Marlene Cruz. Marlene, how are you doing today? Very, very good, Jose. I am excited, as always, because this is the first episode of 2023. How was your 2023 so far? Well, my, my 2023 is so so far is amazing. As you can see, I'm wearing proper winter attire for the Caribbean. Uh, <laughs> so it's a it's 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 an interesting thing to see winter from a place where where it, where the sun rarely goes away <laughs> but Absolutely. Uh, but i guess that 2023 is already showing some really interesting signs as per how politics and government in general will go and i think for the first five days of 2023 eight days of 2023 I, i'd say that a lot has happened and i guess that today we're going to be talking about what has happened in the first days of 2023 and a particular topic that it has to do with which is the topic of delegation of powers which is so central to public policy and governance it's it's a really big discussion but we have to get into it <laughs> absolutely so let's dive right in what is your opinion first of all of what is going on right now at this present time so so it's an interesting thing what, what we can see at least right now in the house of representatives of the us because i think that's a topic that has a lot to do with what we'll be discussing today in the house of the representatives we can see that after the midterm elections uh, the republicans uh, took control of the house at least in a slight majority and because of that uh, to confirm a speaker it's usually entailed that the majority, the majority party will choose a candidate um, from their own fold, of course. But in these, in today and yesterday, it's been seen that a group of 20 Republicans uh, has actually withheld their vote from the candidate from their own party. And when we're addressing that, the idea of why would they withhold their vote from a candidate of their own party, it's because they can see that if they withhold their vote, they have a greater degree of power over the candidate because they have a requesting power. They can ask the candidate to do more for them in exchange for their vote. And it's already been two or three days without a Speaker of the House until that Speaker is sworn in. Uh, none of the new congressmen and congresswomen can be sworn in. And it does speak to a really central issue of governance, which is the idea of who should be in control of formulating power. Those yes. 20 Republicans are from a pro-Trump faction, and they're very much in disagreement with the candidate that the establishment branch of the Republican Party is sending. And it, it comes to that discussion. Who should be in control of setting the parameters uh, to power from the legislative branch? Yeah. And as it currently stands, so by the way that you're explaining it, which is really nicely and giving us a nice picture of what can be done and how these powers can be used for some hidden agenda for some agenda of of some sort that you know any representative has holding this power i'm not going to give you my vote right now because i'm going to have more power over you that, exactly. there's a lot to be said there yeah and the current and the current candidate for speaker from the republican party if he loses more than four votes from his own fold if that he, he doesn't pass. Uh, so, so that's a big of an issue because at the same time, the Democrats will not vote for a Republican uh, 
speaker, meaning that the majority has to come from within the party. And if there is separation, this candidate for speaker might not be confirmed. And you also see a bit of an impasse between both sides because those 20 Republicans have said that they're not going to vote for that candidate. And at the same time, the majority of the Republican congressmen and congresswomen, they have all said that they would not vote for anyone else in, uh, unless it's that particular candidate. So it's a bit of an impasse, right? But I guess yeah. it comes down once more to that idea of who should govern. And for that, we should reflect a little bit on what the role of the legislative branch is within the U.S. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And so as we let, do let's know, talk a little bit about that. What is sure. the role of, of the legislative branch? You know, how does that work specifically? Can you break that down? Yeah, sure thing. So the U.S. is a three-branch federal system, meaning that you have a central uh, government which is constituted by fifty U.S. states, which are all technically sovereign uh, states who within themselves drafted a contract called the U.S. Constitution, where they swear cooperation and some shared powers and some self-rule within that framework. Now, the idea is that that federal government is going to have three main powers. You're going to have an executive branch, which is in charge of executing laws and norms and making them happen. You have a judicial branch, which evaluates and analyzes and resolves controversies relating to the law and how people comply with it. And then you have a legislative branch, which is usually at the center of most U.S. controversies because it's the place where power is formulated. And when I mean for power is formulated, what I mean is that it's through the laws that the legislative branch approves and ratifies that we have the particular parameters of how people within the U.S. or U.S. citizens in general should behave. <laughs> for, exa- for example, when, when the the road system in the U.S., the highway road system, it, it comes from a piece of federal legislation. Uh, the Federal Ports Authority, the Federal Aviation a- uh, Agency, all of these typical agencies and regulatory bodies, they all come from a particular law that gives the federal government a power to do something. So when you look at the general framework of governance in the U.S., you'll see that the only reason why something can be governed is because there's a law that says so, right? There is no spontaneous powers and, and, and there is no implied governance so it all has to come from a law. And the law is is then written by or suggested by the Congress. Co- correct, correct. Right? And the uh, legislative that's specifically. Part, part, yeah, exactly. And that's part of the role of the Speaker of the House in which you actually see that this is the person that runs the body which directs most of the legislation in the U.S. Contrary to popular belief, most legislation in the U.S. does come from the House of Representatives, not from the Senate. Uh, and and when you do have a controversy over who is going to direct that body, at least in parliamentary standards, it's pretty much a body of uh, it's pretty much a discussion of what type of powers are going to be transferred, cancelled, reformed. Yes, it's a big deal. US. It is. It is. And that's where, where, where we have this issue, because governance changes in, in, in the US and in democratic countries. Um, it changes according 
to the particular parameters of power that legislative branches set out, uh, meaning that governance cannot transcend or undermine anything that a legislative branch has already stated. That's what in law is called an ultra vires action. Government, can, government cannot go beyond or below the standards set by law. Uh, so... So, it's, it's so really what happens, Jose, when um, when government changes from a whole body of, of, of people representing the Democratic Party to a whole body of people representing the, the Republican Party, which is obviously different views, right? Mm -hmm. So the laws and, and legislature that has been in place remain in place, and now there is a switch in perspective, or how does that happen? So as we saw uh, the, the, our past two uh, episodes where we talked to some people from the Republican, the, Demo the Democratic Party, uh, we could see that uh, the main focus of these parties tend to be around the idea of who government should serve or what government should serve. You do have a Republican Party, which is far more individualistic, much more inclined toward, uh, towards assuring certain agreed upon individual freedoms and you do have a democratic party which is much more collectivist and very much set upon the idea that uh, that collective freedom uh, reigns over individual freedom so when you do have a legislative body that's run by in a majority sense by either party it, typically the governance will reflect that idea of government, right? And, and it's no accident. When we saw the Roosevelt administration, uh, the, the Franklin Delano Roosevelt administration, uh, the famous New Deal administration in the 1930s to 1945, uh, you did see a government, a, a type of governance that was very much collectively, collectively driven. Uh, the idea of social securities, public programs, state financing towards certain enterprises. Uh, and when you go to um, a Reagan uh, presidency, for example, you will see a, a general framework of governance, which is very much driven towards the benefit of the in individual liberties, mitigating taxes and obstacles towards individual freedom, etc. So here we can establish like a, a big rule, and it's that the ideas of those people that run government will always shape governance, right? Yes. And, and, and that is like a key point. And that's why the Republican Party is precisely having this internal discussion. Should we cede the general framework of governance to a pro-Trump faction within our party or yeah. to a new wave or establishment faction within our party? So this that that could be a huge change uh, in in terms of how things are done right moving forward. Now, do you foresee it to be um, it's already a kind of like a, a struggle, but do you foresee it to be more of a struggle being that we do have our president currently is from the Democratic Party and now the Republican Party is taking the, the legislative part? Well, it does certainly depend on which a uh, factions of the Republican Party stay in control, right? Um, I believe that the pro-Trump faction of the Re Republican Party uh, is in a very much adverse point of standing to the Biden presidency. So I do foresee that if pro-Trump Republicans do take over 
the House of Representatives that there will be a lot of conflict within the Biden presidency, per se, because of the, the typical shifts and everything. However, if as we could as we can see in the midterm elections, many of those that were elected were from were not from the pro-Trump uh, part of the Republican Party, and and they have actually stated that they want to cooperate with the Biden presidency, meaning that. We talked about this a lot some episodes ago, but meaning that bipartisanship could become a, a real a possibility or a, a real big reemergence of possibilities in the in the following months, right? Yeah. But it does depend on probably who will emerge from this. Yeah. What would, in my opinion, at least, I would love to see more of a bipartisan, right? So we can kind of get away from the dividing so much and get more into the uniting energy. Um, what is your take on that? Oh, I definitely agree. Like bipartisanship is, I, I think that general cooperation between the sectors of a society, be them political, economic, religious, social, NGO, etc., whatever they might be in a, is always very beneficial. However, we do have to recognize when an impasse is in place. And I do believe that uh, many members of the Trump faction within the Republican Party are precisely establishing a bit of an impasse uh, within the legislative branch so that their candidates can emerge. And understandably so, mind you, like the only reason why they exist is because they've had power before, so they don't want to lose that power. Yeah. Now... Now, what I would say to that entire regard is that bipartisanship can help insofar as the general idea of government is in some way a sort of reconciliation between collectivist ideals, which we have discussed, and individualist ideals. And I do believe that in, in some regards, some past presidencies in the United States have had a really strong balance in those two regards. Mm -hmm. The Eisenhower presidency, the Kennedy administration, all of these presidencies in one regard or another did manage to maintain a really strong balance. But the way that they did so was making sure that the legislative branch of government in one way or in another way was not so reflective of party ideals as it was reflective mm -hmm of a general agenda for the country, a joint agenda for the country. Um, so in that regard, we come back to the, the whole delegation of powers thing because uh, there is no use in delegating powers if everyone is in disagreement with said right. powers. Um, right. and, in, and, in, and in this, we reach a really strong conclusion, uh, which we can continue to discuss right now, which is the idea that a governance must be persuasive. Uh, and, and it's something that at least in U.S. culture we're relatively accustomed to. Contrary to many other countries, there is a big culture of questioning why things are done in a particular manner. In a particular in manner, yeah. And the idea behind that is that to question is to bring into light whether government has the justiciable elements to actually do something. For example... Maybe the legislative branch passed a law for, uh, for national security, but does that necessarily give the government the capacity to spy on people's individual social media? Or, for example, um, maybe the legislative branch did confer a power to the executive branch 
that it must uh, manage the COVID situation. But d d does that necessarily mean that people need to compulsory, need to, by obligation, take the vaccine, for example? Those are right. discussions all related to the delegation of powers, which yeah. is the idea of to which extent government has actually been given a power by the people, and second, to which extent can government exert that power within its oh. given framework of rights and obligations? So that's that's important to kind of dive into a little bit. Um, as we know, it's the legislative branch, right, that, that makes laws. So if they come up with these laws, they're supposed to check on the people or with the people, quote unquote, um, to see what the people need. And according to those needs, those the, the laws that are supposed to be written in place are supposed to reflect those needs, which we have seen that it's not necessarily happening like that right now, right? Correct. What is it that needs to happen or what has been done before or and or what could be done in the future to kind of allow the people to have a little more say and power in that process. Yeah, well, here's the thing. Most democratic governance throughout the world tends to have a really strong presumption that when you vote for someone to be your representative, that person has a total power of determining the good of their voters, right? Um, so in the case of the U.S., we have a representative democracy, which is the idea that we do send some representatives to D.C. and in hopes that they will vote for things or present laws and proposals that will in some way benefit us, right? That's representative democracy. However, as we have seen, that is not always the case. Usually people make a grave mistake, at least elected officials make a grave mistake of, of being elected and then returning to their constituency after four years when they need to ask for a vote or something. So it's a very valid question, the one that you're making, because the idea is, it appears, it appears that citizens in the U.S., the only capacity that they have to actually intermingle with the system is to vote for someone that will intermingle with the system. And is that democratically sustainable? I would say no. There's other countries where many laws are passed by means of referendums. Um, there are other countries where people have instant voting systems. I believe it was, I think it's, it's one of the Gulf countries that actually created a, an application on your phone which says uh, the legislature just presented this law and you receive a notification and it's like you citizen what do you what do you are you in favor or against that law and you in a moment just go like Doot, and yeah that's a way of participating in ancient greece uh, all citizens uh, participated in the system whereby they voted by placing particular rocks of the color of, yeah. of white color or black color uh, into giant amphoras, jars, so that these could be counted. So I do think that direct democracy uh, could certainly be something that we could build upon that would definitely help people to be, uh, the, the country to be, in, to involve people more in the direct deliberation process. And I think that it's not a far-fetched idea. Many yeah. people consider it unsustainable. And 
Yeah. I agree with you. The only thing that we need to make sure, of course, is whatever system is in place is, is a system that is backed up by, you know, protection and, and, and fraud, you know, fraud, protection against fraud and things like that, because that mm -hmm. could happen. Um, but it is necessary to have a system in place, as you were mentioning, to involve people, not only every four years or every two years or every six years when you need to, to be reelected, but you know, involve people in, in, in the decision making a little more and getting their opinion and, and asking them what they need and checking back with that specific community and seeing what, what are the needs at this moment because it keeps changing and evolving, right? Mm -hmm. So there is, uh, there is a lack in the system that needs to be filled. And I think that that's going to eventually only happen, you know, when we push, like we've said before, when we as people push for it because the Definitely. current the current government or governance isn't going to say out of the blue this is something that's necessary let's implement it it mm -hmm. has to be kind of in a way forced by the people Oh, definitely. But you, you'll notice that even though that this is a very contemporary preoccupation uh, of democratic consistency, um, we'll notice that the founding fathers of the United States did calculate in their framework of the U.S. Constitution some ways through which government in itself can bypass the tyranny of some legislators. Yeah. Uh, for example, uh, as, as we said earlier on, the fact that the U.S. federal government presents a law does not mean that the government has every single power to make that law happen, right? The illegalization of marijuana and its labeling as a federal uh, uh, drug uh, does, does not entail that the federal government has access to everyone's houses, right? So there is a particular right. due process that needs to happen for the federal government to be able to actually take into effect these powers without extending its reach to an authoritarian way. So although we can have the discussion of how to mitigate democratic decay by means of some particular representatives malusing their people-given yeah. power, we have to also notice that governance in itself does have some safeguards against this type of tyranny. And therein comes a really interesting topic for all of you guys that are interested in law, which is administrative law, which precisely pertains to the certain framework uh, or degree of action that government can exert over a particular delegated power. Okay. So after we've gone through the entire discussion of having a legitimate legislature present some laws, we we arrive to which degree government actually enforce these laws and through which means. Right. And therein comes this beautiful topic, which I think everyone that is interested in, in, in public administration, public governance should know about. Because it, it's certainly one of the biggest safeguards for institutional democracy that there is in the world. I actually had a professor who used to tell me, if you want to identify a country, an authoritarian country from an non-authoritarian country, just evaluate if they have administrative law. <laughs> if they don't, it means that the system can be lent to a wide abuse by its policymakers. Right, right.
So it's it's pretty important. <laughs> oh, it is. It is. Let's talk about how that's in place here in the United States. Sorry, can you repeat that? I said, let's talk about how that's in place here in the United States. Oh, sure, sure. Sorry about that. Yeah, uh, so in the United States, administrative law works within a particular boundary of constitutional law. The Constitution, as we discussed when 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 Manuel Mas came to visit our show, it gives government a series of rights and obligations, right? It it gives it gives the government the duty and the obligation to safeguard certain things, right. but it also gives the government a particular set of restrictions of things they cannot do. And when you do see the Bill of Rights, the first ten amendments of the Bill of Rights, you'll see that these ten amendments are written in what's called a negative legal standpoint. And by negative, you don't mean bad. What I mean is that a the laws are directed for government not to not do something to. Right. instead of doing something. So, for example, a free speech shall not be infringed. That's basically the U.S. Constitution telling government you can't infringe on the free speech of the citizens, right? So when you do discuss the general framework of, gov of, U of the U.S. government, you can already see from a starting point that it has a series of restrictions, and that it can't go beyond those restrictions. However, there have been times in which the U.S. government has gone beyond those restrictions. Right. Uh, can we curve the right of free speech from an Al-Qaeda member, who knows, who's trying to radicalize a population, for example? Can we curve uh, the rights to privacy of a person that's planning a terrorist attack from their apartment? Who knows? Uh, can we go beyond a person's right to property when said property can prove to be uh, dangerous for the other residents of a community. And when you do have these questions of government trying to make, to assure national security and everything, uh, but having a big obstacle, which is the idea of, in, uh, of rights that cannot be surpassed, mm -hmm. then you start having the first administrative law related questions. To which degree can government actually go beyond these? Beyond. Laws? And that's when that's when administrative law starts presenting many of the issues related to uh, the standards, uh, as we call them in Spanish, at least, <coughs> which is the the matter of what things need to happen for government to uh, to be able to justify such an infraction, right? Right. If we were to actually get into a legal discussion, there'd be certain parameters for the, the for those standards, but we need not get into them. Once we invite a legal scholar, I'm sure that they'll be able to talk to us about that. But what we do know is that there is a plethora of checks and balances in place within the federal government and within state governments through which government can actually ask itself that question. To which degree can I go beyond the particular rights and restrictions that I've been given to accomplish certain roles? Right. On another and, and matter, we have sorry to interrupt you we have seen that in the past and how it surpasses certain things because of national security we've seen that in 9 11 when it happened mm -hmm. after that some laws were passed and things like that the issue there is like you were mentioning uh, so what point and uh, and and does that have a lapse a, a time that it lapses right 
exactly. or does it have some kind of restriction or is it very specific in terms of the condition that has to be met mm-hmm. in order for that to, to, to be granted, right? So mm-hmm. I think there needs to be more, more specifications um, and there needs to be in certain cases, in my opinion, some time, you know, where that's no longer relevant. When you go to the airport, you still get a lot of things done. There's a lot of processes in place still in place because of what happened in 9-11. Do we still need to go down that route, right? And, and that revisionary matter is of, of an essential importance to administrative law because you'll see that many laws and administrative actions and edicts are placed precisely for a, frame, for, for a particular time frame. Uh, For example, the COVID pandemic uh, has seen a lot of administrative mandates and executive mandates passed throughout the United States uh, under the guise of emergency mandates. And when you declare something to be an emergency, you need to establish, uh, to justify that matter, the emergency. When shall that emergency time end? And uh, throughout the U.S., there's been a lot of standards as to discuss that when a particular uh, contagion is held below a certain standard, etc. But at least in the case of Puerto Rico, for example, national emergencies are declared every year during hurricane season. And we can see how many of these uh, emergency mandates continue to extend themselves months after the hurricanes, uh, just because of a particular bow- uh, un- unbounded, let's say, set of laws which do not tell the executive government when do emergencies end. (laughs) So I guess that there is a big discussion as per how just are these types of mandates truly. But we do have to understand that that government does need some flexibility to to work with emergencies. And that's why administrative law provides those vehicles. And it's a a very political type of law. and, and, And in that sense, I think it's a very good type of law to have. Yeah, and I agree. And and also, let's be realistic. I mean, you know, there are certain situations that are emergency that do require for to for a little bit of a give and take, right? So if you want some security, you're going to have to, at least for a certain period of time, give up certain things. That's That's understood, and that could be placed in a balance, right, according to the situation. Um, I think particularly it should be something that is very situational according to what we're seeing right now. What is the level of the emergency? And just go deeper in, as you were mentioning, when does it end? And involve the general public in the decision-making of when that ends. Definitely. Because I've never heard a question being asked to people as, you know, does this regulation, does this law still holds true um, and is still helping the people? Because at the end of the day, you want this to serve the people. You don't want it to go against the people. Yeah, definitely. And another big controversy within this is that sometimes government simply it surpasses its limits. And it, it, it does happen sometimes where government acts upon a power that they have not been delegated by law. So sometimes laws have a bit of of an issue because sometimes laws that are hastily written 
tend to, in one way or another, not specify the parameters of a delegated power. For example, if I were to say that the U.S. Senate, I'm sorry, the U.S. executive branch has should control taxation at the federal level, that, that is a very wide power to give to the federal government, right? You need to establish what does taxation mean, taxation over which things. And the fact that the federal government has control over federal taxation does not mean that they can tax people in Germany, for example. Right. does not mean that they can tax uh, people under their foreign control. It does not mean that they can tax every single type of commercial activity. So a lot of the of the discussions within administrative law usually relate to the idea of the delegation of powers. Has government been delegated a particular capacity through democratic means to actually do something about something? And that's something that was really much discussed when when government in the mid uh, 20th century started a, an, a strong process of legalizing certain drugs, right? Mm -hmm. And during that time, 1950s, 1960s, there was a lot of opposition to government, uh, even from uh, lawmakers, who were basically saying that in no way government had been given the capacity to uh, regulate what people put into their bodies. That, 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 that was a really interesting discussion. And when the abortion debates are going on uh, currently today, that's yeah. another administrative law contingent because many people say that government has not been given a power to regulate the particular medical treatments that uh, people in the U.S. want to go through. So, yeah. so th these discussions, and I'm not saying that any of these are correct, but these discussions happen within federal within federal administrative forums yeah. where people claim that the federal government is acting unjustly or the state government is acting unjustly by exerting power over something they weren't given permission to do. Yes. Uh, hence, something called an ultra-virus action in administrative law, meaning beyond the limit. Yeah. And it's important people to understand that they have the right to to kind of say and speak up when they believe that the government or the current governance that we have um has you know impinged on their rights right yeah. are going above and beyond what they should definitely and I, I think that one of the biggest examples for that type of accusation happened during the vietnam war many people don't know this but the vietnam war was not officially a legislatively enacted war Usually when, I mean, the, the standard procedure for procedure when a country is going to declare war on another, on another country is that the legislative branch of the decisive body of a country issues a war declaration. It's usually a type of declaration regulated under international law. But in the case of Vietnam, there was no war declaration. It began as a support operation, operation for the south of Vietnam, which was aligned to the U.S. against the communist north of Vietnam. Uh, and the interesting thing to see in the Vietnam conflict is, is how is it that gradually the U.S. government started sending more and more and more and more people to the Vietnam conflict and how it is that more people started, uh, I mean, more people died every day, how more people uh, were drafted. And that was something that many people within the U.S. questioned. 
they were saying, wait, th there's not been a democratic war declaration. The legislative branch has not conferred a power to the executive branch to do this. This war might as well be illegal uh, by our local standards. And many people it did take the U.S. to court to discuss the Vietnam War because many people were losing their sons and their daughters uh, right. because of a conflict that the U.S. has legislatively not agreed to enter on. And the, the particular legal excuse that some people gave was that uh, it was a part of the national security agenda. That's where yeah. the concept of foreign self-defense was coined. Uh, right. The idea that to defend our borders, we need to be involved in other issues. And yeah. that concept of foreign internal defense is something that has been used throughout the 20th century and even right now in the 21st century to justify conflicts and or intervention in conflicts that the U.S. legislator need, the, the, legislative, the legislative branch need not agree upon. Mm -hmm. As we discussed uh, when we were discussing democratic governance and the idea of of what a good life was when Joseph was was uh, here participating with us, <laughs> we can yeah. see that that many lawmakers are very much worried on the idea of regaining their elections, and there are some particular matters that are not election worthy. For example, right. and, and people that vote in favor of, war, of wars, at least in our current generation, it tend to lose elections because war is not is not a popular topic anymore. The, the, the myths of patriotism and heroism behind war uh, have kind of like died down over the, over the past yes. decades. And because of that, many politicians and elected officials do not want to vote for war actions, meaning that most of the war, most of war efforts in the U.S. are justified under that concept of foreign internal defense, we need to intervene in the Ukraine crisis because if not, something local is going to happen. We need to intervene in this area because if not, something local is going to happen. So, and, and once again, administrative law is pretty much there to say, no, for you to take our sons and daughters to conflicts abroad and overseas, this needs to be agreed upon everything, uh, right. by, by everyone. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So there, there obviously are things in place now um, that our founding fathers even thought of. So you can even see the 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 way that they were thinking when they were, you know, founding the country, where they understood that they could be a tyranny, that they could be a, a power that overtakes, um, you know, against what the people want or is good for the people. So these things are already in place, but we see how certain things, certain situations and certain emergencies will give some leeway and some open doors for, for things to be done despite that, right? So that means that we need to have something in place that, that sets some parameters around these things. Definitely. Right now, most of these things uh, that, that we might call obstacles towards that type of tyranny it do have a stronghold in the U.S. through jurisprudence, meaning decisions from the particular state Supreme Courts uh, and the particular federal circuit and Supreme Court. So, But the, it's an interesting to also understand that this issue kind of goes both ways. It's mm -hmm. not always us just telling the government not to do something. Sometimes the government has to act in favor of things, not 
understood by law to actually assure some particular rights and obligations that are implied in the U.S. Constitution. Yeah. For example, if everything were to be ha to, to be legislated under a tyranny of a majority, of, as Madison called it, there many minorities in the U.S. would be disempowered, or many people, many minorities in the U.S. could find their interests endangered. So there is also a way in which, through administrative law, governments can regulate the particular parameters of a delegated power so as to assure that minorities or people that were not in favor of that law are not affected by it. So one of the things that happened during uh, the Red Fear area, the, the Red Fear era of the United States, where people were very much afraid of communism sweeping the nation, was that a law, a, a series of laws under the uh, under McCarthyism were passed in the U.S. to hunt down Soviet and communist spies and infiltrators. And curiously enough, most of these things were presented by populist politicians, people who who mobilized the giant fear and hatred towards left-leaning ideals in the United States. Mm -hmm. And because of a natural disdain to the Soviet Union, but this lent itself to an utter persecution and disenfranchisement of anyone who could have been suspected of those ideals. However, although the law appeared, these laws appeared to give the, the federal government a total power over finding communists in the U.S., it was the federal government that actually, in one way or another, kind of like shaped it so that some rights, such as the right to privacy and the right to property and everything would not be infringed. So it's it's a discussion that goes both ways. As, yeah. as we can discuss if the government has done something that's been delegated to it or not, we can also discuss whether or not the government should do something which it has been delegated to do, which could go against the rights and obligations of many people. So, right. so it's an essential topic. Whenever we're going to discuss if government can do something, should do something, it's an essential query that must be placed at the beginning of our discussion. Has government been giving, given a democratic mandate to actually carry that action forth? And after that, we can evaluate a second question. Has it been given permission to carry out that action in this particular manner? And after that, we have a third question even so, and it is that if carrying it out in this manner affects the rights and obligations of the constituents of the United States of America, and in so, if it does so in a just manner, a necessary manner, or if it's just being tyrannical, it's in, in, in its application. These three questions are questions that administrative law places in front of the governance process and the public policy process. And therefore, these are questions that shape how it is that governance and public administration happens in the U.S. Absolutely. So, Very important questions. Now, who who is answering or who or what is answering these questions and how they're determining the answer? So most of these controversies are held by something by 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 courts in the U.S., but also by a particular court called called administrative courts. The judicial system of the United States basically <laughs> establishes that legal controversies shall be addressed. 
by courts, be them state, district, circuit, circuit federal, uh, etc., who will actually look at the facts of cases and establish whether or not a violation has occurred or whether or not the cited laws and statutes are just or unjust. Therein comes an interesting capacity to U.S. Ju uh, ju jurisprudence and the judicial branch, which is judicial review. The courts yeah. in the United States can revise laws. They can give their particular angles to laws within a particular framework, and they can actually revise previous sentences and everything, ma making them a de facto and de jure legislative body in a sense almost. But um, That's a big thing, though. It is, it is. And it's, it's, it's a bit of a revisory body in that sense. However, when we do see controversies relating to administrative law, uh, be it administrative actions, be it when government, when an agency has done something illegal to you, you can usually resort to something called administrative courts or administrative tribunals, which are courts within the particular agencies and branches of the executive government um, that address these controversies. So, for example, let's say that that the Federal Highways Administration, for example, that, 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 there's, that there's a controversy relating to where a particular highway has been placed. Mm -hmm. If, if the, the citizens of a particular area that's, that, that's been affected by, by that decision claim that the Federal Highway Administration did not have the delegated power to put that road there, they can go to a, an administrative court within that agency mm -hmm. uh, to actually litigate against them. However, there's, there's a lot of controversy around whether or not this type of court should exist because many people would support administrative courts by saying that it is natural that they need to exist because these courts are specialized in the same matters that the agency is specialized. Therefore, there are the best judges for any controversy emerging from that agency. But at the same time, other peoples would accuse these courts of being biased by saying, well, if the court is a member of the particular agency that we're litigating against, then they might be prone to right. you know, favoring the agency. Right. Um, they need to be independent, in my opinion. It, it needs not to and, be a part of. Right? And, and sometimes you do have administrative uh, courts that are by law established as independent or, or independent revisory councils. But what, what is very interesting to see in administrative courts is that through a certain set of parameters, people could appeal administrative court decisions but in, in front of conventional courts in the United States. So, so I guess it does fall within the general judicial system of the United States, but there's some interesting controversies around it. So those are the people that would technically answer those particular questions, the, the court systems and of the West. It's interesting to see, to know that these things are in place, but to be quite honest, the people that would have the kind of information to understand even how to go through the process, right? The language, the money that is involved in representation as well, um, all these things, that come into play make it a lot harder for people to really raise their voice if they're not, you know, coming together collectively. 
Yeah, right? definitely. And that's always been a really big issue with the law in the United States. Although the law might be beautifully written, it is a very expensive muse to court. <laughs> so I, I put it in Arthurian poetic terms there. But uh, what, what I'm trying to say is that if you do have a legal system that relies on the individual capacity of affected citizens to bring to court things that are of discontent to them, then you better rely on the, the economic capacity of these citizens to actually be able to carry that forth. And in today's context, most of the people affected by adverse or ultra virus administrative actions uh, tend to be people from poor areas of the United yeah. States who do yeah. not necessarily have the economic means or social access to these court systems. So here we give access to another big discussion of governance. Who are the people that actually have access to shaping the way that governance looks. Yeah. Hypothetically, if everyone has the right to present themselves before a court, um, th then if everyone would have the right, that would entail having the means to exert that right. right. And if people do not have the means to exert that right, they'll just become... Uh, particularly evasive of these type of controversies. And in fact, that has led many state governments and territorial governments to behave in such a manner where they calculate the expenses of an administrative court procedure. And they think, well, no one is going to have the money to appeal that or to present right. for a court. So let's just do it. And if, if someone goes, we'll out money them. That's at least what yeah. they say. Spanish. It defeats the purpose, really. It defeats exactly. the, the, so, the purpose of even having the system in place to begin with. Exactly. Right? So a big part of, of assuring a good governance and assuring a just governance around delegated powers is that, is that people have the necessary means to actually appeal and uh, criticize those powers through means of courts. And therein, there's a lot of non-governmental organizations in the U.S. that have done an amazing job in providing people means it towards a, a, arriving and presenting their their issues at these courts. In, in Puerto Rico, there's a lot of environmental organizations who have a lot of lawyers under their service that constantly receive pleas and receive uh, requests from citizens around the island who have seen some damages occur to the general environmental situation of Puerto Rico. And, and they use these agencies to be able to go to the administrative courts and not have to pay uh, because they don't have the money to. <laughs> so so I guess that NGOs and nonprofit organizations and uh, private businesses as well do all play, play a big role mm. in facilitating access to government. But at the same time, we should be thinking if this is a right, the only way that we can exert this right of bringing things towards court is by actually having the monetary and resource capacity to do such a thing. Yeah. If, so that's something that we should definitely reflect upon. Absolutely. I agree. Well, this has been a very interesting uh, topic. I think it does need a follow-up, though. Um, and tell us about our upcoming week. I think you have oh, some information definitely. to share with us. Well, talking about delegated powers. <laughs> so this following month, I've been giving an amazing opportunity to be able to 
uh, participate in a series of sessions at The Hague uh, in the Netherlands uh, relating to international public law. So I'll be there during the, the next three weeks. But we're going to have the honor of being uh, co-hosted by some other more than worthy substitutes uh, to keep up with Marleni, <laughs> uh, who <laughs> will discuss, who will give a follow-up to this discussion. So we're going to be addressing the idea of NGOs and government, uh, that correlation, access to justice. We're going to be talking a bit about the public policy cycle, how it is that public policies are formulated within a particular cycle. And we're going to have specialists in all of those three topics come to discuss these issues with us during the following month, live with all of you here at The Governance Talk. That's right. Well, thank you so much, Jose. And we hope that you have a great trip. Please bring us some great information back. Um, and definitely make sure you take in some, ha have fun too, okay? Let it not all be work. <laughs> I hope so. Let's see. <laughs> well, Thank you so much. And we hope, ladies and gentlemen, that you join us too in the upcoming weeks. Thank you for coming and thank you for joining. Jose, have fun on your trip. See you next time. Bye. <laughs>